Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, not Marcus Kauke. Today, I am delighted to have as my guest, Marcus Kauke, fractional CRO and advocate for biosafety. Marcus, welcome to your own inquisition. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I feel like one of those roasts. <laughs> it shouldn't be too, too bad. As is custom, would you mind giving us the 30-second introduction on your background and how, for your sins, you ended up in sales? I was an accidental salesperson, I guess. I always wanted to have my own business. And then I did various bad A-levels, a degree in Middle Eastern studies, which qualified me for not a great deal because I wasn't very good. And so I ended up in a sales role and I kind of enjoyed it. And I'd I'd been dabbling part-time. Then I did 10 years in recruitment recruiting salespeople, so getting a sense of just how difficult that is to do well and to do ethically. I've been in sales 35 years. I've worked across 500 different market segments through my training and consulting work and probably helped add more than six and a half billion to top line revenues. But they did all the work. I just prodded them in the right direction. Well, that's uh, excellent. Sounds impressive. And was there like a, a breakthrough or a breakout moment of realization that this this was your thing, or, or was it kind um, of a more gradual thing? I think there were steps along the way. The first time I ever made a sale, I was selling attachments at an MLM for a company called NSA, and they were doing water and air filters. And I managed to upsell someone from fifty pence for a piece of tubing to 137 pounds and 97 pence. Um, Wow. Anyway, so that was a real thrill. The problem was the following week, he came back and returned all the stuff. So, but I I got the sense of the pursuit and it was just through asking questions. I I didn't particularly uh, strong arm him, but looking back, it was insincere. So along the way, I had epiphanies where I realized that systematizing was better than winging it. (laughs) It doesn't take a huge leap of intellect, but it took me a while. And then looking for different methodologies, and then I came across one which I've used for the last 18 years. And it's good, really, really good technique-wise. But I've come to the realization over the last few years that I've got older and longer in the tooth. As I observe thinking as the customer, I can see why those techniques jar if you turn up with the wrong intent. And if your intent is to see them as a mark and they're a 25 grand commission or a two grand commission or a 500 grand, a 500 pound commission, you dehumanize them and you get bounced back what you push out. Yeah. Yeah. They'll reflect that they don't trust you. So you never get intimate, you never get close. And that means you're always starting fresh. And those were my epiphanies along the way. Um, Because they are the symptom, the byproduct of a series of complex, interrelated, interdependent activities, decisions, and functions. Okay. So I was going to ask, um, it is a sincere question. I mean, why is it why does it take so long to get uh, good at sales? You know, with hindsight, can it be done faster? You know, what are oh, things yeah. to avoid that waste time and lead down the wrong path, so to speak? Absolutely. I mean, that, that's a thing that baffles me because as I look at it, um, I, I've spent the last few years examining sales 
and all the elements that seem to have an impact where you can control it. And one of the illusions that you have is you have control over the outcome. You don't. You have control to some degree about the behaviors and inputs. So behavior is important and measuring the right things is important. But the problem is that most people measure things that have already happened and give you no useful information in terms of how you need to adjust your trajectory, velocity, momentum now in order to achieve your outcome. So a lot of that information you're managing with is after the fact. So kind of uh, getting the impression that lots of things have changed in sales, but have they really? Is it the same game today as it, as it was 20 years ago? Or we just have better equipment to keep track of all those things you were mentioning? I think sales is worse off now uh, than it has been historically. And I, I'm not a Luddite by any stretch of the imagination, but I've got a book from 1921 that was talking about fundamental values and how you show up. And as another human being, you don't want someone who you can't trust as a partner in business. So you may suffer them, but you probably won't do a deal with them a hundred times in a row. And each time you do a deal, you'll always be wondering, did they try and pull one over on you? Yeah. And I don't think that's healthy. Uh, And I think it's, it's destructive. And as vendors, we can prove how different we are in how we show up, how we sell. I can imagine that that kind of feeling from the vendors, you know, always worrying that they're being ripped off or not given an honest deal, are always reticent or at the back of their mind, they're kind of looking somehow to to kind of get that equity back or or have a down payment for that debt of uh, doubt. So they're always looking to get a bit more out of the deal. There, there are three um, groups of people that I'm going to lump in for this. There are people who give, and they give unconditionally. Now, what's interesting is, based on the research that Adam Grant has done, 50% of the top performers and the bottom performers both give unconditionally. So it, it's a product, uh, it's, it's a, a characteristics of people who are at the polar ends. People who are uh, matches, these are people who expect to be, have reciprocation for anything they give. They tend to be very transactional and there's a bit of a scarcity mentality. Everything's contractual. Okay. And there's no harm in that. There's nothing wrong with it, but they tend to be middle performers, as do takers, people who just suck out of the system because they stay just above water, but they never make right. it very far because people can't yeah. trust them. They won't let them become intimate. They see that they have a high self-orientation. Now, all three of these are realities in our day-to-day. We see them in organizations. We see them in families. We see them in businesses and public sector. So understanding that that is one mechanism, one system at work, recognizing that other people have a need for detail have a need for order, whilst others need to be able to innovate. So you need to be in sales. The reason it takes a long time is not down to learning skills and technique. That's the easy bit. That's the bit you can teach to a chimp. But being able to really turn up with the right intent and 
have the buyer's best interest at heart, front and center, so that they can feel protected. They feel safe. And it's also key that there are shared values. It feels like um, the relationship between, certainly for the big ticket stuff that a lot of my clients work with, if you're going to make change, make it deep and meaningful and sustainable. Don't make it yet another, this too will pass. Right. So that sounds like where we're taking the buyer's interests at heart and assuaging their fears and concerns that we have to take time to understand what those are first. Yeah. One of the things I loved about the methodology that I was trained in is that it's very contractual in that you're always getting minor agreements to move forward. There's a bit at the beginning where you agree terms in terms of what you want to have happen, what your expectations are, maybe even some boundaries and timeframes, and agree that at the end you'll set time aside for a next step. But the real clever part is that you're constantly making these little agreements. Are you okay with that? Does that make sense? Is that something that you want to build into the solution? Yeah. And so by the time you get to the end, you don't have a big decision to make because what it's built upon, and this is what's been lost because everyone favors the technique because it's very clever. It's very good. But technique on its own is a weapon. It's manipulative. Right. And it should be a shield to protect both sides and work, help you work towards mutually assured success. Yeah. I, and I think that I know intent this. is that that's the differentiator. Yeah, I think I know the system you're talking about. And what I kind of, uh, from what I know of that, what I like is, as you say, you build incremental steps. And then almost when you've got to the end, that is the contract. It's, it's, it's now done. You know, you built the agreement along the way. It's not like you're sliding a piece of paper across the desk and saying, sign here and agree to all these terms. Yeah, press hard, the third copy's yours. <laughs> Yeah. So I was wondering, and I've heard this phrase and, you know, talking to you um, over recent times, this phrase, good, good in sales, is sales fit for purpose? What is good? What, you know, what kind of qualities are we looking for that define good in sales? Well, this is a huge question and very contentious. So I expect that to be reviled for this. What passes for good tends to be quite a lone wolf an individual contributor, a producer. They tend to be uh, these hunter personalities. So they'll go out and they'll find new business. They'll kick open any door, in theory. The majority of people in those roles actually would much, much prefer to be dealing with inbound and not have to do all of that that nauseating, largely dead work, um, which is mostly soul-destroying. Some people claim to enjoy prospecting by phone but very few actually do it well. And it's a fantastic tool used well and appropriately by skilled practitioners. But typically what happens is you get, congratulations, John, you are one now. Here's your database, log in by using this password, and off you go. You've got 600 accounts, 1,000 accounts, off you go. And it's your job to make this number. And unless you understand the context in which people are buying your products or services, unless you understand the moving parts of the business that you're selling to, it's very difficult to make yourself relevant, contextually relevant. Because whilst you may have a fantastic 
piece of Salesforce automation or marketing automation or AI or whatever, unless you understand the environment people are going to have to live with it in, chances are what you're not going to be able to do is head off the anticipated bias remorse. Because that that drives people to the status quo. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, that sounds like almost being a culture fit. You know, we we are matching contexts on, say, things like um, the environment in which the buyer is, their uh, capability, their skills, their capacity, and even their value system. It's a whole ecosystem, which, I don't know, would it be fair to say that's a, a whole culture? To be aware it, it, it's very steeped in culture. I think it begins even deeper than that in terms of the values. Values uh, seed and cultivate culture. Without those core values, uh, understanding you know, what you consider to be acceptable and the standards to which you hold yourself and others, I think those are really important. And far, far too few organizations really pay heed to things like rigorous authenticity. That kind of leads into the next question, which is, you know, what are the bad habits in sales, uh, things that ought to ring alarm bells for anyone listening to this podcast? You know, what do they look like? Well, I think there are a number of issues. What we're looking at, first of all, is the ultimate purpose of the business. If the purpose of the owners is to exit fast, then the business will be designed perfectly towards that goal. Now, the question at that point is, well, who's going to pay the negative price for the positive payoff the investors are hoping for? So that's the question about where the value is going to come from. Who's, who's going to pay for that? Who's, who's going to, yeah, who's ultimately going to pay for it? And normally, in most of these organizations, I'm not tarring them all with the same brush, but in most of these organizations... It's the poor sods on the sales floor, the people picking up the pieces in customer success and customer experience or customer service, which we've been talking about this morning on LinkedIn, and the customer, because the experience by this point stinks. You get thrown through different automated telephone systems to people who can't make a decision who hand you over and you have to start telling the story again and you've got to give you security details again and everything's broken up and it feels disjointed and you feel like a used part. Right. So these are perhaps symptoms then of when things are going wrong um, and I think you're alluding to some of the consequences of, of these bad habits and where it leads so <laughs> I think it's been made clear, but I'm wondering for those still in denial who are listening to this, you know, what have they failed to see in themselves or their organizations and can they be saved? You know, what are, what are the conditions or requirements for, for turning these things around? What is it that can really kind of get in people's minds for them to recognize, hey, wow, uh, this is me? Or sometimes well, from what I gather you're saying, some people are actually doing this deliberately as part of their exit strategy. I think they really need to start with the buyer at the heart of everything that they do and subscribe to the idea that every buyer deserves to feel safe when they're dealing with you or one of your people. They they come to us because they want a better future. They're paying for an outcome. 
They don't buy your CRM. They don't buy your book midwifing services. They don't buy your AI. They pay for outcomes and they rent those outcomes for as long as they're still relevant for their circumstance, for their context. Yeah. And I think the drivers of this are you have to be reliable. You need to be responsive. Two hours on the phone after they've told you your call is important to us, you're 57th in the queue. That's not responsive. That's just making an efficiency by actually removing the quality of service or reducing it. And you've got to be relevant. Yeah, so, I think you've heard, mentioned before that uh, a lot of effectiveness is getting sacrificed for efficiencies. Yeah, I, I, I think, and experience is the other uh, victim of all of this, and victim with a big V. It's been you know, just dragged up to the altar and its throat slit. Because now, in order to cover their backs, this pillar of rigorous authenticity gets squeezed and pushed. So vulnerability is seen as a weakness instead of a strength, uh, an act of courage. The willingness to recommend a competitor when they would be a better solution for the prospect or for your customer, that shows a sense of maturity. It doesn't show weakness. Admitting when you got it wrong, being willing to take the bullet for your client when they need you to protect their livelihood. If they've gone to bat for you, you have to be ready to take a bullet. There certainly seems to be like a depth of market about things. And so why would we spend time trying to serve those people that are just not aligned or that we can't help when the top of that depth of market are people more suited to what we're trying to achieve and perhaps others are uh, better served? So trying to keep customers that perhaps aren't really a suitable match for us, does that signal desperation or just... Yeah, it does. And it's the wrong thing for the customer as well as for you. If you look at the bell curve, prices law basically says there are 4% of your customers who are costing you probably around 60% of your waste and cost and time and uh, tied up resources. Do yourself a favor, do them a favor and put them out of your misery. Yeah. And it's not because you're bad or they're particularly bad human beings. They may be, who knows. But you know, if they are the client from hell, they're affecting your people and your people have to be your number one. You look after them. Everyone has a window to how they affect the customer. So that buyer safety is always front and center. You build your uh, proposition from where the customer wants to get to, to where they are. And you find those moments where you can bring a challenge, where you can enter into constructive conflict, where you can bring clarity where you can be relevant, where you can help them gain an insight into what's possible. Now, uh, that approach is going to meet with far less resistance than just manipulatively banging them with yet another technique. Yeah, I'd never thought about it like that before, that every interaction at every level, to kind of get cold about a language, affects the assets, as it were. So if there's a bad interaction with a bad customer that's a bad match for a particular salesperson, it's going to have an effect on that salesperson. They're going to go and moan and complain within the company or to their friends and colleagues. Or or they'll bottle it up. Yeah. And, you know, when, when we look at things like mental health and stress and burnout, 
that lead to turnover, which is expensive, especially in a skill shortage. You know, good salespeople can get a job at the blink of an eye today. I was uh, on one of my forums earlier on this week, this week, no, last week, and it took less than a week to hire somebody who was an absolutely spot-on match. And they had very clear filters, and they've got a very good recruitment process, and they were going to a known market. But being able to do that saves you or gives you 15 weeks of additional production time. Now, yeah, well. that, that's nearly four months of quota production. Yeah. But you're burning out your talent. You're treating them as if they're a commodity and expendable. You're not giving yeah. them a career path, so they're not fully engaged. And then they're turning up to your customers, not fully engaged, unprepared, winging it, or using technique to try and browbeat and prove how clever they are because they're insecure for their job. These are all interrelated. You can't separate John the human being from John the SDR, John the AE, or John the manager, because they're really hard done by. I had some questions actually later on about uh, the great resignation, as it's called. Um, is yeah. this just job churn? Or, you know, is no, it it's a, d- this is extraordinary level. You quite often in some organizations expect that level, but they're generally terrible employers and they find it difficult to recruit anyone good after a very short period of time. Now, when you've got an entire economy doing it, that's a serious impact because you've got to, all that knowledge goes out of your organization. Then you have to pay money and invest time and resources in attracting candidates who you think have to go through this song and dance where you know that you're probably going to hire 10 for three to work out and maybe one of them will survive two years. That's incredibly inefficient and expensive because you're paying them salaries, you're burning through leads, you're paying licenses for them, you've got management time, there's training and induction, there's legal, there's HR, there's recruitment fees. And then there's all the lifetime value of those customers that are lost because they'll never do business with your company again because the experience was so pants. Yeah, yeah. So I, I gather that there's a lot of it going on. But are there companies that are surviving this? Are there companies that are not experiencing churn? And if there are, what are they doing differently to stand out and um, keep good staff and keep good business? It's a great question. It's a difficult one to give a catch-all answer to. However, what these organizations are doing especially well is they are able to reverse the risk for each of the different layers, leadership, management, and coalface. And they give trust. It's it's a paradox that in order to get trust, you have to give it first. So often, and in the UK, there are 2.4 million accidental managers. They just ended up in the job and they've got no idea what they're doing. And they think that management is about control. But actually, if you've hired good people, then trust them to do the job. Yes, they need guidance and training, and they may need a little bit of supervision. But if you don't give them trust, then chances are you take it away. And you do that through micromanagement, through constant beration over the numbers and their activity levels and making them feel like shit about themselves. Now, you can't separate John the human being from John, the person doing that role. Yeah, I get you. Um, yeah, because all that baggage comes with you. Yeah, um, I suppose, and uh, 
they seem to be marching towards the same tune. So by having common purpose central to what they do, then everybody is working towards those objectives. They work in sprints. That's one of the things I've noticed. They tend to work lots of parallel projects together in short bursts in order to make progress. In the same way that if you treat someone for a cancer using radiography, if you beam the gamma rays all the way through on one lens, if you like, you're going to burn and kill healthy tissue. So their solution was to fire it from eight or 12 different microdoses, all concentrated on the tumor. Yeah, and I remember. That's, uh, that's how I think about sprints. I remember reading about that recently, actually. Um, I was looking up on, uh, there was a book actually, Range, that mentioned that experiment. Fantastic. Experiment. Yeah, yeah. And um, it asked the same question. And, um, it's like a thought experiment to get people thinking, you know, you've got this tumor or cancer, but the, the beam radiation will destroy tissue on the way through. So how can you do it so that it doesn't? And in the book, it guides people through the idea that actually not many people get the answer to that question right first time. And then the book suggests talking about analogies where, you know, there's a house on fire and it takes time to run to the lake to get a bucket of water. But if 50 people all did this at the same time, they suddenly can put the building, um, you know, they can squash the fire, but they all come at it from different angles. Yeah. And that's the uh, the idea. And then the idea is that people get that metaphor and then they can think of, well, if we fire smaller or less intense beams, but many of them from different directions, it's not sufficient to destroy the particular tissue it goes through. But when they all hit on the same point, it destroys the tumour. This is why collaboration is so key. Um, I think it was Dan Kennedy said something along the lines of, you know, in future, collaboration will determine your success. And I'm fully with him. I, you know, one of the most momentous uh, bits of collaboration I've ever come across is photographing the first photograph of a black hole that's 54 billion light years away. That's a fair distance. Okay, it's a shitload of distance. So I don't know when the universe started. I probably got that wrong, but it was a, a many billions of light years away. Anyway, long story short, what happens is 240 or 260 scientists across six different telescopes participate over eight to 10 years on this thing called the Event Horizon Telescope Project. And the metaphor they use is they break up this mirror and they spread the shards across uh, the planet, and they all point them at this one point in space at the same time. And over five days, luckily the weather was clear, and they all these teams managed to get exactly the same outcome and confirm a piece of theoretical physics from Stephen Hawking's team. It was through collaboration. Now imagine the, the distances and the calculations and the mathematics that went into it and the time and the error and the wrong turnings, and the, that everybody coming at it from different perspective gives you that range. And that's mm -hmm. another reason that I see many organizations struggle, because they may have people of different skin color, but they're actually same education, same socioeconomic uh, background. They're all engineers or whatever. That's not real homogeny or homogeneity. The reality is that you need different perspectives. 
to ask different questions that you wouldn't ever have the imagination to ask yourself. Yeah. And so this is where a grown-up management style that understands how to facilitate difficult, often contentious conversations can get people to collaborate and work towards common purpose. Managers have low self-orientation. They, they understand that their success is determined by the success of their people, which means that you end up with much more highly engaged team players, people who are willing to go the extra mile, people who give discretionary effort. And That's interesting. These are professional managers, though. I was just thinking about what you said earlier, that something like two and a half million managers are promoted into the job rather than being skilled for it. And I've kind of noticed in my small meanderings in business that often the front-facing staff or even the service staff in some jobs, you know, the people on the front lines, the coders, the developers, they seem to always have a really good notion of what the problems are and what the solutions are, but they don't seem able, encouraged or enabled to push that message back up the um, power hierarchy in the corporations, for lack of a better word. I don't know whether it's for fear of uh, being chastised or whether the boss is not welcoming of criticism, you know, these, but from what you're saying there, it sounds like a professional manager would welcome those kinds of messages. Well, this is, this is cultural. If you have a culture where you listen to your staff, you manage inclusively, they feel heard because you then convey what you're doing about what you've heard in the same way that when you go to a hotel and you get the rather self-serving customer satisfaction survey afterwards about stuff that's important to them because they think that matters. And what they don't leave you is enough space to talk about all the shitty things like being stuck by the lift or overlooking the pool when there was a stag do and there was your air conditioning was knackered and the soundproofing was uh, non-existent. And the following day, you got up to a surly uh, server at breakfast. That's the kind of stuff that you want to hear back from when you tell them about it. Yeah, sounds like we stayed at the same hotel. Um, yeah, was, and yeah, the, the, the Hilton Inns, yeah, uh, right. Owens Mills. <laughs> I was wondering, uh, changing the subject slightly, uh, it's a big question. I'm thinking, you know, what is broken in the world of commerce? You know, is anything broken? Can it be fixed? Is is a CEO worth a $10 million salary and millions of stock options and 100 hours of private use of a company jet? Rarely. Almost never. What's really important, the kind of CEO that I think is worth that kind of money is one that delivers value commensurate with that kind of paycheck. But simply raising the stock price is not adding real value to the business, the community, the employees, the customers. That's pimping um, on behalf of the investors who, in my book, need to come last in line. They've made an investment. It was a calculated gamble that the business would grow. Now, obviously, as owners, they do have uh, rights. However, if this valuation is what's driving the business, then you're going to attract people who think short term. Your customers don't want to be thought of as a transaction, by and large. And you don't treat your customers well, they leave, by and large. Apathy and making it difficult to leave was an old tactic. But thanks to the good old EU and um, whatever, we've got uh, more consumer rights for the moment. Now, the reality is... In this day and age, 
the consumer has a very, very loud voice. And there is a tiny minority that has a sense of entitlement who have a very, very loud voice. And um, like an empty vessel, they make the most noise. So you need to train your frontline people to prevent these things from ever occurring and build your product and your service so that they don't occur. The only way you're going to do that is by listening to what your customers are telling your frontline people. And that doesn't happen anywhere near enough. There's a wonderful organization called Authentics that listens to 10 billion customer conversations, raw and unfiltered every year using AI in the US health sector. And what's really interesting is when they play the montage, the audio montage of customers thanking the company for the great work they're doing, and then the other montage of the terrible experience that they're having, it's eye-opening. But unless its senior executives and managers are out there speaking to customers on a regular basis, I think they miss out on that interaction. They, uh, they've lost that service feel. And I, I look at someone like Alex Tatum, who is the CEO of West Coast. He's constantly out with customers. And they grew 800% last year. The three was, It was um, famous for saying managing by walking about. That, that always struck me as a good idea. Yeah. In this day and age, you may not be able to or may not want to have a, a company like that. But it doesn't mean you can't still care and have regular engagement with your people. And you know, your, your responsibility as a manager is to help your people achieve their fullest potential. It's not just about hitting the quota. One of my favorite management practices was practiced by Tom Shodorf. And unless 80% of a manager's sales team was hitting quota, they weren't invited to any of the jollies or the awards or mm. the trips to nice sunny climbs. Interesting. Yeah, so a bit of a collaborative information sharing, helping each other out rather than win-lose, keeping yeah. the best deals well, for myself, the, that kind of thing. There are two things that I'm seeing just start now. One is a focus on management enablement, but it's exceptionally rare. And it's the most important. Everything's about sales enablement. If you enable your managers, they'll take care of your salespeople. And the other piece is occupational coaching. So this means on the job, in the moment, you coach what you see. And there are some phenomenal technologies out there. Notion has developed this program called Star Manager, where they're able to train hundreds of managers in multiple countries all simultaneously. And the net result of having lots of managers suddenly coaching in the moment and doing a good job is a significant increase in performance improvement. ROI is 74 times what you paid per employee. Now, that's pretty damn impressive. You've got mm -hmm. technologies like mobile practice that allow you to take a moment and practice that until you own it. But a lot of people resist these kind of technologies because they think they don't have time for it. But the irony is, the more time you spend on coaching, the more time you have to coach because you're enabling people to do stuff for themselves. Yeah, now, that's right. giving trust. That's also building them up and preparing them for their next role. And this is another really important aspect, which I think we need to think about, which is a management apprenticeship. I fundamentally believe that the lack of leadership and lack of management capability at the moment is holding the, uh, every business back, let alone the country. Got a note here that says, I 
to mention uh, the idea of interdisciplinary com- competences. So, mm. you know, like traveling from industry to industry, sector to sector, detecting these kind of relational abstractions or, for lack of a better word, similar patterns that work well to take these new patterns and then make them familiar for others in different environments to help them think through problems they haven't seen in those unfamiliar contexts. It kind of brings a a grounding and a rounding about things. Well, this is where there is a real opportunity in the strategic alliances and partnership space. Find people who don't compete but are adjacent and learn to identify the continuum that is the customer's context. So understand that the customer doesn't just turn up, buy your stuff, and then miraculously they're fixed. Life goes on. And there are other moving parts. Most vendors in technology need to really wake up to the fact that they are just one cog in a machine that's part of a bigger machine that's part of a much bigger machine altogether. And unless they learn to play nicely with others, they'll struggle. They'll just pick up the dregs and the uh, the crumbs. If they happen to have the latest bit of fashion technology, they'll grow quickly. But lots of those companies grow quickly and burn. We're facing another major problem, which is interest rates are probably going to be going up. I'm seeing them happen on my savings accounts, uh, for which I'm very grateful. They've gone up from 0.4 to 0.55 of a percentage point. I feel like that was money well, well earned. But yeah, that represents a 35% hike. And it's going in that direction. And many companies that have managed to raise capital have done so on the back of debt. And servicing that debt is a major threat. And so businesses really that are built on strong foundations with their relationships with their customers, where their customers are loyal, they've seen them through hard times. And in return, their customers will naturally, many of them, see them through hard times as well because they want them to survive. They don't want to have to replace them. They've made that decision and they're happy with the service. So that's um, that's a major challenge, I think. Speaking of like investors and uh, money and interest rates, I've noticed things like Bitcoin, uh, real estate, stocks and shares are increasing and I can't quite square that with what's happened with the recent COVID thing and Brexit. So I, I don't quite know what to make of that. But I was wondering, you know, if an investor approached you to sink a couple of million quid into a project, you know, what, what kind of projects would you consider putting that kind of money into that would create most value as you see it? And, you know, what kind of returns do you think are possible? And what would the investor have to do to earn that kind of return? Again, it depends on whether they're European, uh, UK, or Silicon Valley VCs, because VCs in the UK seem to have been quite happy with an 8% return on capital, whereas um, in Silicon Valley, they're probably looking at 30%. So it will depend on the kind of pressure that you're put under. I think you need to look at areas, I, I personally believe, areas like collaboration, voice, those I think will be big growth areas. That said, um, you know, good tr- traditional trading businesses may well be uh, pretty suitable. You know, caravans in this market, because people can't travel a- abroad, um, yeah. I suspect camper vans, you know, those kind of things, small boutique hotels might be interesting. They're, you know, they're, the hotels are precarious. 
business yeah. at the best of times. But if you run them well and you can get them filled, then they're incredible money spinners. But Sorry. again, a lot of that's fueled on debt. Yeah, yeah. It seems they can't get away from it. I, I hate to mention it as well, but you know, other things that seem to be affecting or disrupting these kinds of things is is Brexit. I, it seems yeah. to be here and it seems to be biting. So is this opportunity or uh, is it business as usual? Is it, you know, the old adapt and overcome thing? It is what it is. So you can either choose to see it as an obstacle or an opportunity. Yes, it makes life more difficult. It means that you've got to be aware of uh, new rules and regulations and bureaucracy. I'm not wildly in favor of it in any way, shape or form, but it is what it is. And I've learned to accept what I can't change. So you need to look for the gaps. You know, where, wherever there's a silver lining, there's a wonderful gray cloud. And you've got to look for those gray clouds and look for ways that you can make people's lives easier or better. Is there a way that you can improve processes? Can you help people to drive out cost or inefficiency? Can you help them achieve their outcome better, faster, more pleasurably? There's any number of different ways that you can tackle it. But you've got to understand where your market fit is. And that's another problem that a lot of organizations don't really understand. Who they're, where, where they fit and who their ideal customer is. And so they, they use very broad brush uh, tactics to make that judgment. And as a result, they then spend an inordinate amount of time, money, resource, and opportunity in pursuing non-prospects, just bothering people, spamming them. Uh, Do you think flooding a lot of people take time to actually develop their ICP or, or do you think that uh, far too many are winging it? I know it's probably a little they, question. They, well, they, 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 they often have done it 10 years ago and they haven't changed ah. it. And they think they know who their ideal customer is but, you know, with the right kind of uh, tools. So White Rabbit now does ICPs in minutes and it saves days and days and days of work, certainly hours of work. And then, um, you know, filtering uh, through data, you know, just let the technology could, uh, spit out an accurate ICP that gives you granular information that you can use to then segment into smaller groups and market to them and stop wasting your resources and your people on calling people who are never going to buy. You know, being able to sense. identify people who are going to be responsive it is you know, possible now. Five years ago, two years ago, it was hardly, it wasn't possible. Now it is. That sounds like that. A, an exciting uh, area to, to be in. Uh, and I, I can only gather that um, it's well received. And if you embrace the technology, you know, embrace the change, uh, it's, it gives you um, quite a competitive advantage. Well, there, there, there's a book that everyone in leadership should be reading now called Tech Powered Sales. To some, it will feel a little opaque and alien because it really is about taking sales to a completely different level. Well, one of the companies that I'm chairman of has built a technology stack uh, using things like Connect and Sell, White Rabbit, Cognizant, um, you know, Parallel Dialer, and um, various other bits and pieces. And they've shifted the paradigm. So instead of measuring the number of conversations per day, that somebody has. It's now a number of conversations per hour. Now, when you're getting a six to eight fold increase in production, in actual effective work, that's game changing because it means that you can now filter out the dead work and arbitrage that. So you can give it to somebody else who's expert at it 
and then can deliver quality leads in your ideal customer profile who are receptive and want to have a conversation with you now. And also to start filling out your pipeline for two quarters out when there is no competition sniffing around so you can get the coverage. So when they move from passive to active looking, then you can, you're really the only show in town because you've already been delivering value and building the relationship. Then take it one step further and work out which of your partners are already selling hot into your cold market. Right. So you only ever sell hot. Then your conversion rates are 14 to 18 times higher. Yeah, there's that collaboration again. Trust. Absolutely. The person's credibility and not messing it up. <laughs> learning new ways. Um, and I, I know you, you're constantly learning yourself and a bit of a, a voracious reader. Uh, can, can you say what's hot on your learning list at the moment? Who you're reading or listening to? You know, what um, are you hungry for? I've been reading my fr- about my favourite philosopher, Bruce Lee, so Be Water, My Friend, by his daughter. And actually, the principles are universal and timeless because I've seen them in other great systems and methodologies. And you know, you know, they're, they're ancient truths. There's nothing mind-blowing in terms of that it's new. But actually, to come back to your earlier point, we haven't evolved as a species that much in the last quarter of a million years. So we still need to communicate in a way that that ancient brain, which it, you know, in, mod, in, in evolutionary terms is very modern, but it's still ancient. It's still primed to look for threats, look for us versus them. And you need to be able to keep it calm because I think so much selling, so much management, so much leadership is based on command and control and being adversarial. A lot was made in recent years about the challenger sale. Now, actually, as an approach, it's very, very effective, done sincerely and well by somebody who doesn't come across as being a know-all. But the same technique, the same approach applied badly just comes across as being rude and offensive. And so, right. so it seems like in the context of constant change and adapting that we need to learn the mind perhaps of the prospect or the potential buyer to recognize what their concerns are and uh, address those first, almost like make a connection before any kind of correction. We need to understand the buyer, the customer, and how they're getting from where they came from to where they are and where they want to get to and where we fit. We need to understand that customer and buyer journey, which begins long before they even know we exist and long after they're done with our product and service. We need to develop some business acumen. So we need to understand what the different moving parts are, what they're talking about at a leadership level. So a a good book would be the 10-Day MBA, just to understand the kind of conversations the C-suite are having. Then uh, I would look at uh, a great book called Multipliers by Liz Wiseman around how you can empower your people and uh, the right use of power by Peter Block. Fabulous book. And then I would spend some time on listening. So Just Listen is a must-read by Mark Galston. And teach your people how to listen, but also teach them how to ask questions. So a couple of areas I would suggest. One is appreciative inquiry, which is a really powerful, feather-light 
but incredibly potent approach to finding common ground and helping somebody see a better future without browbeating them, without manipulate, you know, negative manipulation and force. The Little Book of Appreciative Inquiry is a good one. Asking Questions by Antonio Garrido. Good, solid question foundations in there. There's something that I've recently learned myself as well. I've been uh, learning a framework of uh, question asking. And the connection or the bridge building um, seems to come first. And it's what I mentioned earlier about spotting those kind of uh, familiar abstract patterns. So it seems like looking for what's in common between us first is a way to kind of make that connection before we can talk about what's different about us. And I've noticed that some people sort for difference first. So they're always kind of uh, a bit awkward when you meet these people for the first time, because instead of saying things like, oh, where are you from? What do you do? Trying to make that connection, trying to find out something similar, they'll point out a difference like, oh, you know, you wear strange clothes. (laughs) And it's just an observation that they're making, but it kind of jars. And I've kind of realized that some people are just that way. So it seems as though just asking those questions Building rapport, you know, it seems like rapport is the method by which we can continue the conversation and that leads into well, uh, trust and all those things. It, it, I think it starts with showing up with the right, it keeps coming back to showing up with the right intent. Are you there to help? If you can help, are you the right person to help? Are you turning up with a sincere and deeply held genuine curiosity? Or are you turning up with a bunch of assumptions and a market stall to pedal? If you're turning up to sell product or a service, you're going to get a lot of pushback. You'll get resistance because you'll create the tension, the friction, and it's unnecessary. I was wondering as well, you've done what, uh, how many podcasts now? Is it 300 and some odd? We've we've got about 350 in the can so far. Yeah. And... uh... There must be profound insights from some of those podcasts, if not a lot of them, all of them maybe. Uh, I was wondering, you know, what say the top two or three insights that you've had um, that you've been able to implement um, into your uh, working practices? Oh, God, there are so many. Uh, Yeah, I thought there would be uh, (laughs) so many guests. Well, there there have been, but they've they've been really insightful. People like Alfie Cohn opened my eyes to why competition and compensation systems need to be challenged. And, uh, you know, that's a fatted calf for most uh, sales leaders. You know, the idea that you take away commission and pay everyone a high base, well, where goes the incentive? Well, there's good evidence to prove there's a disincentive and you actually only move the needle with a tiny handful of people instead of the majority in the middle. I think uh, people like Simon Bowen have been incredibly instructive in having me think about the world through a, a different lens, uh, using models. I look at Mark Herbert and his approach to leadership and management. Kelly Stewart, uh, very insightful. I just released that, uh, that episode yesterday. I could go on for hours. I don't mean not to name people. It's just that I've evolved so much. My thinking's moved on so much over the last two years in particular precisely because of the collaboration through the podcast. Yeah, fascinating. I wonder if there's a bit of like recency bias there. We always remember the most recent ones, you know, not to not name those earlier on, but I suspect they all contribute. So I was kind of wondering, uh, curious as well, 
from those podcasts, from having those discussions, it seems like perspectives may have been changed. So I'm wondering what encourages creativity and problem solving and what stifles it in business? I think a good old bit of tension is helpful. I love a bit of constructive conflict. And I, you know, one of the things I've been particularly grateful for has been the sales of force for good community and you know, debating mm. really difficult topics. And you know, I'd, I'd like to get more variety in there so that we get more range, more perspective, because at the moment we tend to be rather white and middle-aged by and large. And most of us uh, have uh, challenges with follicles. So I find the seeding of ideas, there's a, a concept called ideation, which um, in Gallup's definition is the ability essentially to connect the dots between seemingly unconnected subjects and topics. And I've, that, that's a strength for me. And I've been joining the dots across so many different areas and come to realization. And for, one, for me, one of the most insightful moments, being able to name sales as a wicked problem. Ah. And for me, that's now led on to meeting up with Marcus Kirsch, Alan Watkins, and a bunch of others. So what's going to be really interesting is seeing how they bring their perspective and their network technology to bear on this problem. Because when you can start to see the intersections where there is a triad of uh, points, if you start to work your sprints on those triads, potentially you can move the business forward significantly. And it's like a flywheel effect because the momentum builds and builds and builds and builds on its own because there's no friction. So what I'm always looking for now is where, where are the, those points of friction and then lean into them. Don't be frightened by them, lean into them because the problem will define the solution. And this has been a real eye-opener for me, being a classic mansplainer. You know, someone tells me a problem and then I say, oh, you can do this. However, by working with others and collaborating and seeding all these different ideas, and recognizing the wicked problem, now what we have to look for are wicked solutions. Mm. Now that's really exciting because <sighs> that's a proper play for the brain and getting you know, lots of brilliant minds together with all these different perspectives, that suddenly makes this project incredibly exciting. Yeah, strategic alliances again. I've I exactly. got so many questions on the list, and one of them was, is sales a wicked problem? And I, I think you've, yeah. you've answered yeah. that, but I, I suspect we might be coming up to time. Uh, so many questions. Uh, it's been so insightful already. Uh, so many more questions to ask, but I, you know, to close it out, I, I know traditionally now we have to ask, you know, as you have with your guests, you know, what are you struggling or wrestling with right now? Uh, do you have any choice picks to share? Finding the right market position, because at the moment, a couple of the products still feel like they're being applied as a nice to have and maybe a payoff in the future. And that's been really interesting. So dissecting that and looking at it through the lens of the customer and finding out the right place to point it. So that's one. That sounds and, just like what you were describing before, getting many eyes to look at that in different yeah, ways yeah. to describe the solution to the problem. Often this takes a, time, a long time. I was chatting to my pal Guy earlier last week, and you know, it took them eight years to get close to a product that was absolutely spot on. And it wasn't the product they originally intended. Um, so 
you've got to be patient with this stuff. And this is why you need patient capital. If you're gonna, if you just after a quick hit and you'll burn out and fizzle out. But if you're trying to do something really meaningful, now you also have to be ready to pull the plug if it's not working. So that's always there. But in Guy's case, you know, they've they've now got 750 ecstatic clients and they're growing like wildfire. Yeah, it's worth it. But you've got to speak to your customers. And it's your customers that are your best teachers by far. Yeah. Nothing like a good beating from a customer. (laughs) Yeah. And as is tradition, you know, what if you had the golden ticket and um you know, you're going back to the, I don't know, 25-year-old idiot Marcus or the 18-year-old, you know, what's the advice for young Marcus? Unfortunately, the idiot Marcus never really made it past 14, 12 or 14 and <laughs> continued up until 54. Um, so uh, I think that, I mean, there have been a number of things. One is your mistakes are probably not going to be fatal, so make more of them faster and learn from them. And ask for help sooner. That was, God, that was the stupidest thing. It took me decades, probably three decades, to actually really ask for help. And people have been so incredibly generous. That's what I've found is people are so willing to share what they know and they're almost, they don't want to impose. I can almost sense that people ask me, ask me, I've got some really helpful things, but it seems such an imposition and they're just waiting to be asked. And they're so generous uh, with what they know. Yeah. And um, it's, it's fascinating. The things that people know are constantly, I find, staggering. So Mind-blowing. Yeah, with that in mind, what's the best advice you ever got? What was the worst? Or what's the best advice you ever gave that had a massive result? One chap I advised, uh, he came to me when he was a student and he wanted to become a coach. So I poo-pooed it and told him to go off and get some life experience. So he did, and he set up a really successful agency. So I'm, you know, really proud of that because he's turned into a fabulous, truly outstanding leader, not being tainted by being a life coach. Um, <laughs> then helping people just find their voice and grow a spine and learn how to set boundaries. That was incredibly powerful, being able to help people to do that because that freed them up to become who they really were. Uh, you know, originally. And unfortunately, because they were being beaten and pilloried, um, they couldn't do anything with it. And, you know, when they find their wings, I, I was helping, I was mentoring someone last year and they're on a pip, now the number one salesperson worldwide in a multi-billion dollar company within their segment. And she's fantastic. And she embodies all the stuff that I've been talking about today. That's what I love. It's right. just a joy to see that she will be a future sales leader. And people who learn from her, wow, what a great start they'll get from their career. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I definitely feel the, the, the kind of compassion and compare, uh, caring that comes through to, to see people succeed. It's not about shaming or telling people they're doing something wrong. It's kind of, in some cases, it seems to be knocking bad habits out of people. Some people it just stop doing stupid things and they, they do really well. So, you know, kind of, I know we're trying to wrap up. So, you know, for people who are listening to this podcast, you know, what's, who are the people who should definitely be reaching out to you today? You know, what characteristics that they have that Um, make it so that should definitely make contact? If you're somebody who's ambitious and really wants to accelerate your career, your sales operation, your business, 
And you're not afraid of really growing very fast, but also in a planned and controlled way. And you genuinely want that level of success because the work that you're doing is important. It's meaningful. You want to create employment. You want to create a fabulous experience for your customers. Then let's have a chat. And especially if you're open to the idea of collaboration, because where I can bring the most value is in helping you to develop those partnerships, develop those alliances, and find ways of becoming more efficient without dehumanizing. And who should definitely not contact you? If you want to grow no more than 40, 50%, if those sorts of numbers frighten you, you're really not going to enjoy working with me. And if you, if you want someone that you think you can kick around, you won't. I'll just not play. I'm too old and long in the tooth to want to play with people who are bullies. You know, look after your people. If you want to learn how to look after your people, if you want to grow a really great business that people want to work in, then get in touch. If you just treat people like they're a commodity, then we're not going to get on. Okay. Two final questions. Uh, what's one thing that you think will immediately surprise those people who do contact you? I'm not as grumpy as I pretend I am. This is true. <laughs> but, as well, again, depending if you speak to my children or not. And I'm not going to pressure you one way or the other. I'm in no hurry. Yeah. I've got a waiting list of people who want to work with me. I take projects on because they're interesting. And I think I can do some real good there. I can help. Fantastic. And how can people get hold of you? Email marcus at laughs-last.com or direct message me on LinkedIn and follow the Inquisitor podcast and like, comment, share, subscribe and give a fab review or a crappy <laughs> review if you hated it. Tell me. I'm perfectly happy with the drubbing. Okay, that sounds fantastic. I might have to ask you about where the laugh last domain came from another time. It, well, uh, it was from the proverb, you know, he who laughs last lasts longest. I right. fundamentally believe that, you know, if you're the last one left standing because you've done the right things in the first place, um, then you get the last laugh. And it should be fun. It should be fun. Just trying to get a quote to mind um, that I learned recently about comedy. Humor and improv are languages for saying big, scary, important things in ways people hear. Yeah, that's really good. I'll steal that. All right, you're welcome. And so I think that's an appropriate place to sign off. So this is uh, not Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. And uh, hopefully Marcus will see you next time. <laughs>